This is episode number 609 with Jamak Degani, entrepreneur, author, and founder of the Data Mesh concept. Today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the easiest way to make high quality podcasts. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Our guest today is the illustrious and visionary Jamak Degani. As the founder of the concept of the data mesh, Jamak is an advocate for decentralization, including with respect to distributed AI. Jamak is newly the CEO and founder of a stealth tech startup reimagining the future of the data developer experience through data meshes. She previously worked as a software engineer, software architect, and as a technology incubation director. She authored the O'Reilly book, Data Mesh, and also co-authored an O'Reilly book on software architecture. She holds a Bachelor of Engineering degree in computer software from the Shahid Behesti University in Iran and a Master's in Information Technology Management from the University of Sydney in Australia. Today's episode should be broadly interesting to anyone who's keen to get a glimpse of the future of how organizations will work with data and AI. In this episode, Jamak details what a data mesh is, why data meshes are essential today and will be even more so in the coming years, the biggest challenges facing distributed data architectures, why now was the right time for her to launch her own data mesh startup, and her tricks for keeping pace with the rapid pace of technological change. All right, you ready for this awesome episode? Let's go. Jamak, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's such a delight to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? It's great to be here. I'm calling from uh, north of San Francisco, an area called Marin County. Oh yeah, nice. Is that kind of, is that the same thing as like the wine country kind of around? Just before. Just before. Just before the wine. In between. In between, about 20, 25 minutes north of uh, Golden Gate Bridge in traffic. Nice. (laughs) Um, And so we know each other through Scott Herleman, who's the host of Data Mesh Radio, and he has been a big builder of the Data Mesh community. He's a huge advocate for it. We're going to be talking about Data Meshes throughout today's episode, and I think we should jump right into it. So for five decades, organizations stored their data in data warehouses. But then in the last decade, data architectures evolved a ton. So first, data lakes came along. And then more recently, things like multimodal cloud data architectures popped up. Now, you're proposing an even newer architecture called the data mesh. So could you elaborate on what a data mesh is and why we need them now? Exactly. Maybe I start with why we need them now and think about that um, history of data architecture evolution. I think all of those solutions were meaningful solutions as a response to a problem at a point in time, and they did phenomenal work. So as an example, when we go to why we had data warehousing, they were addressing the problem of 
um, requiring to, you know, get data from silo of applications. And it was very hard. Business intelligence was hard. So we had data warehouse. And since then, we have done kind of incremental evolutionary improvements on that. So in 2010s, we had data lake because we still wanted to do cross-cutting analytical um, you know, workloads and, and run those workloads, but the process of modeling data perfectly to do that analysis was too, too costly, um, you know, causing friction. So we said, well, let's dump the data just as is in this or in the where it lake and less structured, and we can still get meaningful data out of it for the data scientist kind of scientific workloads and ML workloads. And I think data mesh came again very recently at a point in time that those centralized approaches were in meeting the needs of complex organizations that need to really move fast. Um, so, so they're they're just a response, you know, to a problem that arises with the evolution of technology. And data mesh particularly is a, what is it? It's a decentralized socio-technical approach in managing, sharing, accessing data for ML and analytical use cases. Um, socio-technical. Socio-technical, yes. So it started as an architecture, to be honest, but then I, very quickly, you realize architecture and people are very close, the way we organize ourselves, you know, Conway's Law, kind of mimics the um, the architecture and vice versa. Architecture influences the way we organize teams. Mm. And data mesh as a response to organizational complexity and rapid change of organization's mission and their growth and application of data in all sorts of different teams and areas that it just it needed to respond to an organizational complexity first. Um, so hence it was phrased as a socio-technical. It, it concerns itself with both architecture, technology, and and people. So, uh, so a data mesh would allow an organization to collaborate on data projects in a way that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Exactly. Exactly. So, so data mesh allows. Um, um, kind of independent autonomous teams that are organizing ourselves themselves around um, a particular business outcome, a particular business mission, a particular business function right. to, um, so you know, like to the, do data work. The finance team, the HR team, the data science team, um, all of these people are uh, connected to the data mesh. It allows different parts of the organization to make use of one kind of consistent, um, I don't know how to phrase it, you could probably do it better than me, but you can have like one kind of consistent data process <laughs> that is then accessible to different kinds of teams that might use it in very different ways. So the way that the kind, the way that a finance team is working with data, maybe with Excel spreadsheets or financial modeling is very different from hu how human resources would use the data or how the data science team would use the data. Um, is that the, kind of the idea? You're getting there. So I would uh, maybe um, a little bit, the domain is a, is a funny word and it can be interpreted in many different ways, but you're right that we want to structure the data ownership and data sharing um, capabilities and responsibilities around um, parts of the business can, can, who can operate fairly autonomously. So as you said, the finance team generates some data, 
consume some data, we want to give them autonomy to do that, but do that in an interconnected fashion, right? That cohesive kind of experience that you're talking about is about standardizing the interfaces between these teams. So Amazon, you know, when API revolution and microservices revolution happened back in the, like building larger scale operational systems, Amazon had this idea of two pizza teams, the teams are autonomous, the teams only communicate through APIs. So bring that data now to the world of data, you know, to bring that idea to the world of data. Then you have a retailer that has a team that's focusing on customer acquisition, a team that is focusing on e-commerce, the team that is focusing on order management, logistics, and so on. And each of these have a very clear business outcome and function and and a set of technologies, right? Your e-commerce application, your order management services. So why don't we extend this idea of domain-oriented organization and architecture to data? And if we did that, then what are the foundational technologies and principles we have to be put in place so we don't end up with this data siloing we have? When data right. siloing around domains and application has resulted right. in a collection accumulation of data in warehouses and lakes. So we have to make some changes to have our cake and eat it too, have autonomy of teams and business functions, and yet interconnectivity and access to data across these boundaries. Love it. I think I finally get what a data mesh is. Uh, Thank you so much for that amazing explanation. So what are the biggest kinds of challenges that we face with these kinds of distributed data architectures like data meshes? Are there privacy concerns in that situation? Or is it kind of like federated learning where a data mesh actually helps with privacy concerns. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you, t- you touched one of the most important points that a lot of cross-cutting concerns become very become complex to 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 manage. Right? There there is an inherent kind of system kind of complexity that comes with distributed systems. When you have a centralized system, a monolithic system, it's very easy. Say, I'm going to put walls around it, and suddenly I've got security and privacy. When you separate, which is which is actually, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't agree with that point. I think it's, it makes us feel comfortable, but in reality, it's actually very hard and less secure. And we can talk about privacy and security in a second. But in general, um, for data mesh to be successful, uh, one of the challenges is the engineering disciplines that have to be put in place so that this autonomous, in data mesh language, we call them data products, this autonomous data products can be secure, can be standardized in terms of their interfaces um, can have a level of, um, you know, kind of understand, understanding and trust built into them through the um, both engineering practices as well as their APIs and interfaces so that, mm-hmm. you know, it, the application and usage of them doesn't cause a lot of burden on the user, right? The user right. doesn't have to deal with so much diversity. So, uh, so I think the, the most challenging part that I don't think we have really built and solved is what the, the engineering, the operating system that runs data mesh, right? So what does, um, what are these kind of, how do we automate these cross-cutting concerns like the, um, like the privacy that you mentioned? And that's why data mesh has a fourth component around kind of computational policies. Um, and it expects that, Every, every single data product has a set of policies that are being applied to it and maintained mm-hmm. by it mm-hmm. um, and, and in an automated fashion. 
Right. So right so now, the, the data know. science team can't get access to everybody's pay information across the company from the HR team. <laughs> so even though they're interconnected, um, the way like privacy is built into the way that the system is engineered so that it's not like a free-for-all and anyone can access any data across the organization. Exactly, because you're, there are two things that happen. One is the localization of data to a particular domain, and you can um, then localize and refine, you know, have this fine-grained access to different data products. And each of them is gets managed differently by the rightful owner, right, by the part of the business that actually or take take is tech aligned business team that is managing that data. So that fine grain kind of data product oriented application of the policies um, is, is one way that makes the data more secure. And then the other way, which I don't see much of that implementation, is that once you have this idea of a data product, it's like a computational data in a way. You've got computation, policy computation, data chain, you know, data transformation computation, as well as the data itself as one unit with clear contracts for sharing it. So once you have this computational data in a way, then the access to the data in future through those computational APIs look very different. So right now access to data is like, give me all the bits and bytes and, you know, of course we're building differential privacy and a whole bunch of other techniques, but that, you know, the access of the future is going to be different from just give me the files, give me the rows and, um, columns might be actually run this computation that gives me some insight about the distribution uh, of the data on the data uh, and just give me the bits that is relevant and is right. probably more secure. So a big shift with data mesh that a lot of people miss is that this, the reason I didn't use data in the language or data set in the language and I use the language of a data product and I I had this like quirky name in the book called Data Quantum, which doesn't catch on, so I'm not going to use it much. Was it Data Quantile? It, yeah, Data Quantum and Data Quantile. As oh, Data a, Quantum. Yes, as one, and Data Quantile as many. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so Data, data Quantum, that, it was a language that I used in the book, and it's just too nerdy for people to kind of feel comfortable with it. But the idea was and, that... And this is just quickly there uh, for uh, listeners, the book that, we're ref- that Jamak <laughs> is referring to is her book, uh, she's the sole author of Data Mesh, Delivering Data-Driven Value at Scale, which was published by O'Reilly and came out earlier in 2022. And it is very popular and well-reviewed on Amazon as well as O'Reilly.com. So uh, yeah, just a little bit of context. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of terms. No, I, I would have provided a brief intro to the fact that you are an author in the episode intro but it's nice to dig into it a little bit. And yeah, so uh, in that book, you're not only explaining what uh, data meshes are, but also defining terms in a way, setting the standard in a way for the terminology um, in the data mesh world. And so some yes, of those you're saying catch on better than others and data quantum exactly. hasn't taken off just yet. It's not, it's not taking <laughs> off, yeah. So data product is basically a node on the mesh and um, and very quickly got adopted and you know, there are many manifestations of it, but a certain manifestation of it that I had in mind, which I call data quantum in the book. And yes, it's not very popular. It's kind of scary and from the future. So people don't want to come close to it. Um, it's, it's, it's about the idea that we, the, the, the unit that we will use, this portable unit of exchange of value data, 
um, will have some additional capabilities. And one of those capabilities around actually being able to perform computation on the data. Uh, and that really opens up the possibilities of secure data processing that doesn't require access, direct access to the data itself. And it, you can kind of push processing up to these nodes. Super cool. Trying to create studio quality podcast episodes remotely used to be a big challenge for us with lots of separate applications involved. So when I took over as host of Super Data Science, I immediately switched us to recording with Zencaster. Zencaster not only dramatically simplified the recording process, we now just use one simple web app, it also dramatically increased the quality of our recordings. Zencaster records lossless audio in up to 4K video and then asynchronously uploads these flawless media files to the cloud. This means that internet hiccups have zero impact on the finished product that you enjoy. To have recordings as high quality as Super Data Science yourself, go to Zencaster.com pricing and use the code SDS to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. It's time for you to share your story. Yeah, I didn't know that at all about data meshes until just now. So hopefully many listeners out there are also learning that. Uh, this, this is a big, uh, this sounds like a big revolutionary part of the data mesh idea is that you don't need to be pulling out the raw data, a table of data, but actually you're asking for the computation to happen and happen separately from you so in, in the data mesh. I don't know if we can say it like yeah. that. Uh, and then it returns for you the result or the insight uh, as opposed to a structured table that then you have to run some model on uh, yourself. That's cool. Yeah, and I, and I think that there are kind of parallel, and this is, this is a bit futuristic, right? We don't have that. I mean, somebody who's listening, the, the thing about data mesh is because there is no yet beautifully you know, implemented, like the, 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 that it came from the future a little bit. Right, and we try to build it with our present tools. So people that are listening to this, they will say, if they're coming from data virtualization, federated query engines, they say, well, we have that right now. It's called data virtualization. You run SQL, SQL statements distributedly. Right. Yes, that's just the that's one way of performing computation. SQL is not the only way to perform data computation. Like if data machine learning engineers are training, you know, models, they're not necessarily running SQL, right? Yeah. So Probably not. <laughs> well, very likely not. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So there are pieces, slices of the technology that exist today that can be adapted to this model and take us one step forward. But um, we still don't have a, again, a generalized way of sh bringing these ideas to life and then allowing different technology providers to kind of stick to it. We don't have a codification of this, this architecture. So some of the stuff we would talk about today is a little bit more futuristic than what is possible today. Nice. So speaking of which, uh, I found out just before we started recording. So it's something that you just made public on your LinkedIn profile. I don't know, I guess days before we started recording. Uh, so this episode is coming out in September 2020, uh, September 2022. But uh, we're recording in August. And yeah, so you're your job title just switched to founder and CEO of a stealth startup. So this probably relates to the kind of future that you're envisioning and that you've been talking about. So why was now, after a long history at your previous company, so you were at ThoughtWorks 
for nearly 11 years. And so there must be something special about this moment in time that made you feel like it was the right time to step out and start your own thing. What's going on out there? Sure. Um, you know, for the last four plus years, I've been focusing on this, what the future of data look like that is scalable, resilient, and yet intentional and responsible, right? So this path, the trajectory that movements like DataMesh can put us on. And I was privileged enough to have a platform at ThoughtWorks and with the help of kinds of, you know, Martin Fowler and his reach of kind of audience, be able to put these ideas out there and get it heard. Of course, people liked and that the industry has spoken. Um, but then there is a point in time that you sit back and look, okay, how this little butterfly wing is changing and reshaping the future of technology. And what I saw was the pain points were real with data mesh, the pain points of data mesh surfaces. People are excited about the idea. The technology, a lot of technology providers are kind of sitting on the edge that, you know, they're relabeled <laughs> their technology as being used in data mesh. But right. Yes, so you, right. You, what you're saying there, to be clear, is that there's lots of big technology providers out there mm-hmm. that are jumping on what is clearly a trendy data name, data meshes. Exactly. And they are renaming existing services that are data mesh E yes. as data meshes. And saying, yeah, we've got that already. We've got it. No problem. And what you're saying is what data meshes will be in the not too distant future are a far cry from what some of these big existing vendors are calling data meshes today. That's the plan. Yeah. It it felt to me, to be honest, like, you know, people that make these sudden changes in their lives, they probably have this memento mori moment of like, I... (laughs) will I regret this on my deathbed? And it was one of those litmus tests, like, will I regret if I don't participate in shaping the technology itself? And um, I was stupid enough to say, yes, I will. (laughs) And jump in the ring. Um, Yeah. Awesome. So clearly the tools of today, whether we're talking about data meshy tools that people might be branding today, or even more archaic tools that can't even pretend to be data meshes. Uh, Clearly, the tools of today are not cutting it, in your view, for organizations to be working with data together, to be collaborating on data. So what is your vision for the future? Give us a taste. I have to be careful because I can't share a whole lot. Of Um, course. So I dance around it a bit, but what I see really um, missing is a layer that enables this very autonomous experience of working with data and yet be able to share data, right? This computational data nodes that we talk about, these data products, um, the platform that really makes it really, you know, makes it easy for developers to create them, to use them, to connect them, to share them. Um, makes data scientists' life easier to find them and easily trust them and get access to them. So there's a whole, you know, platform capabilities that can be built to reshape the experience of data developers. I mean, I'm just using a data developer as a as a label. Yeah, for as an example of one of the many types of potential users of a data mesh. Some of which I think this has been implied by some of the things that I've been saying and my rough understanding of data meshes. But the users of a data mesh could vary widely from highly technical 
machine learning practitioners, software developers who are uh, maybe writing code to interface with aspects of the data mesh, whereas other users might be click and point uh, users like the, the HR managers or things like that. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, every data product provides a, the, the idea is that you provide multimodal access to your data so that you can support the same data, but you can support those levels. The layers that, you know, the company is going to focus on is, is probably below that, below the, the point and click type interfaces. I think we want to, we want to reshape how all the other tools going to kind of come and connect and provide those higher level experiences by, um, now, if I say, I say more, but really, mm-hmm. really think of it as an operating system, a new operating system for data huh. that organizes the future of you know, technology. But and the, the way to think about it is right now, a lot of our technologies with the composition of large tech into smaller, what we call modern data engineering tools, a modern data stack, it's still organized around an operating system of pipeline, Right pipelining data from one place like pipeline is such a common language yeah if this much is successful pipeline disappears as a as a as a, you know as a first class concern in our language interesting um, yeah because pipelines have a lot of challenges when they're scale and then we you know they don't have clear contracts so very task oriented or job oriented so very com- very quickly they get hairy and complex and hard to debug and hard to maintain um, those clear boundary of it, contracts and interfaces um, are not embedded into that. And there is a separation of data from the computation. For me, you know, the separation of like body from the soul type scenario. Um, so so the, the technology right now is very much organized around pipelines and then centralized storage. And it could be a feature store or a warehouse or a lake or whatever. And then layering, layering, less layer metadata, less layer access control. Um, so we want to build something that actually gives a different operating model, a mesh data mesh like you know operating model um, that then the tools and technologies can attach to it. Um, but the, the basic fundamental constructs look very different. They don't look like pipelines. Okay, so I guess if we shift away from pipelines and layers and centralized stores, I guess this data mesh, it means that so where, if it's not centralized, the data, I guess it is stored in, within the individual nodes. So it's uh, more proximal to the teams that are working with it, but still available to other teams across the organization. Yeah, at the logical level, right? At the logical level, the control and lifecycle management of the data is within the nodes and within the teams that can actually do that work. Mm-hmm. But um, the interconnectivity allows kind of the, the federated training or federated kind of access or querying. But underneath that, if you are an organization that happened to standardize a particular storage system, I don't know, Amazon S3 or whatever storage system you use, then at the physical layer, you can have all of the storage of, you know, physical storage of those nodes harmonized Um even at a physical level, co-located for rapid access. So that's those are for me two two con- layers of concern, um, you know, compared to each other. Like the where are we physically storing and how are we physically storing for optimizing for the machine, as in terms of access and movement and so on. And then mm-hmm. logically, how are we 
storing or presenting that storage to optimize for people and autonomy. So that kind of logical layer doesn't, doesn't have an organizing system right now. Super cool. And then so um, we've talked about how this kind of this distribution um, and this federation. So I don't, I don't know if we've defined federation for the listener yet. I don't think we have. This idea of federated learning um, is this ability to say uh, for, you know, you could have data on your phone that could be useful for training a machine learning model but it's data that are very private to you, maybe healthcare data or something else that's sensitive or for whatever reason, you don't wanna share your data. So historically, the way that um, the big tech companies or a lot of people have been training machine learning models is using data that they, they would be pulling the data from your phone and having it themselves centralized. With federated learning, your data stay on your phone, but we're able to train machine learning models with those data anyway. So there seems, so in that respect, this idea of federation, there's like, you know, it's, it seems kind of related, like the distributed sense of it seems kind of related. And then, so you also specifically specialize in this idea of distributed AI. So that seems like I'm starting to get the sense of how that's related to data meshes. So if the data mesh allows different groups within a broader organization to be uh, working autonomously and also potentially having machine learning models running in the mesh that return results or insights to them as opposed to um, them needed to work with the raw data. Um, I can see how that's kind of related to this idea of distributed AI. But uh, up until I was researching for your episode, I hadn't heard of this term distributed AI. So maybe you can tell me what I got wrong <laughs> in my kind of like high-level explanation or refine no, think, the idea further for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think you you are right. And again, I'm not, data mesh doesn't try to hyper-optimize for that scenario, but the idea is that scenario is made possible, right? That you don't have to move data around. And AI and distributed AI, as you described it, or distributed federated training, is one application of distributed insights or analytics, right? There could other application could be as simple as some simple analysis of you know distribution of the data and the shape of the data, or yeah. it could what's be what's the average? <laughs> what's the average, right? What's the median? Um, and and or or generating kind of live reports, you know, dashboards are pretty. I don't personally get a lot of value out of them, but but nevertheless they you know they they create a digital experience for decision makers and that's the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Or you can yeah, so so anything in between. So I think all of the what we want to do with data mesh is really remove centralization as a bottleneck. A centralization of organization, sort centralization of technology and ultimately centralization of power. So um so yes, yeah, so all of those scenarios should be part possible distributedly Having said that, to be completely pragmatic, we have to allow, you know, an interim kind of world where new data sets or new data products, I have to correct myself, it's not just about data sets, but new data products get created by, um, off, you know, from the upstream kind of data products and get aggregated, more business logic get applied to them, and they become a data product on their own, and they become another federated source for those computations, which implies a level of 
data transformation, data copying into new nodes, right? But it's it's because if we do that, it's because those nodes have inherent value. As an example, you might have, you know, three different kind of sources of the data that customer touch points information come from. And you want to create this, I don't know, customer touch points aggregate across whether it's call center systems and teams or whether it's e-commerce or, or whatever to get this holistic view of your customer. And you might say there is a business logic that we could apply here, that we could we could apply some intelligence to actually detect it's the same customer they came with, you know, from different touchpoints and so on. And we create a new data product customer touchpoints as an example. So, so this idea of um, mesh uh, should allow this kind of infinite kind of scalable landscape of data products um, to by interconnecting an existing one to generate you know higher value kind of data products but each of those nodes are, are valuable in the, themselves like they, they provide some value to some user and then interconnection can generate higher value data products super cool okay so i'm starting to get how transformative data missions are going to be and how exciting it is that you are launching your own company uh, in this space and so data meshes, distributed AI, these are terms that are very uh, much the spirit or the zeitgeist of 2022. How do you see data meshes coinciding with other technologies that are, uh, that are coming over the horizon, that are becoming more mature? So things like Web3, the metaverse, blockchain, quantum computing, yeah, does data mesh relate? Does the emergence of data meshes relate to these other kinds of emerging technologies? I think maybe there is a um, underpinning thread across some of them, like the Web three and blockchain and so on. And that underpinning kind of Just theme data. is autonomy, yeah. is decentralization, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that it's it's in the same vein. It's, it looks like people are speaking, like the, the you know the world is speaking in terms of what is a scalable. To re, you know, to respond to this super complex system that we as humans and machines are creating, co-creating. Um, so this distribution, decentralization, autonomy is a theme across those. Mm-hmm. In terms of application, where can you know blockchain become a component of, let's say, your federated governance to you know to basically permanently store and share policies and never lose track of the policy that was applied to an upstream as you move downstream. Mm-hmm. Why not? Like, I haven't explored that, but I think there might be some synergy in terms of application of existing te- common technologies across those as a foundational blocks. One thing I would say, though, when we imagine decentralization, particularly with Web3 and so on, there's an image of anarchy that you know comes to mind. It's like a connotation, right? Now, data mesh, while it's being very much founded in autonomy and decentralization so that we can scale, but there is another side of it, which is around interoperability and interconnectivity and a sense of intention and responsibility. So we're giving, res- there is not that the teams are autonomous and they can do whatever they want. The teams are autonomous to do what is needed to be done for the objective of those teams, but they're also accountable and responsible as a good citizen of an ecosystem. So complying with standards and so on. Now that's, that might <laughs> in one community or you know, trend might be less pronounced than it is in data mesh. Wow. Yeah, that was an awesome answer, Jamak. I love it. Um, And so clearly, uh, data meshes 
Web3 blockchain, there's lots of change happening for data scientists and others to keep up with. How do you keep up with this vast technological change? Do you have recommendations for listeners? Immersion, immersion, immersion. I mean, immerse yourself however, whenever, wherever you can. So I, you know, I, <laughs> before coming to this podcast, I went for a run and, you know, listen to podcasts, um, get your hands dirty. I mean, what I find really helpful to me is pick this micro project. Um, I don't have a lot of times to go deep in one tool or another, but just pick a little micro project to get your hand dirty for even a few hours to get a sense mm-hmm. of a technology um, and then immerse yourself with podcasts and books and YouTubes, but, but have a good filter. I, I must admit, um, there is a lot of uh, low IP uh, misinformation out there as well. So building a right. good filter to filter out, okay, this is ad driven. There's not a whole lot of like, you know, valuing this is misleading. And I, I really don't know how to, <laughs> um, what to instruct in terms of developing those, um, you know. Yeah. Top of the funnel f- filter for yourself to stay sane. Well, it seems like th- just like with the term AI, this term data mesh is being misappropriated by uh, various people who would like to piggyback on how trendy and popular this term is. Well, so this is probably something that you wouldn't say yourself, but I could give the recommendation to the listener that trusting a reliable source like you, who is very much at the vanguard, leading the cutting edge of defining data meshes, uh, you know, starting with something like your book, and as you say, doing micro projects related to things that they're learning in your book. So, you know, get partway through a chapter and think, oh, you know, I could implement some simple version of this in code, give that a shot. Um, that sounds like a really great way to get started. Um, <laughs> and you might be too modest to suggest it, but then that way, you know, your I, I love books in general because publishers, especially well-reputed publishers like O'Reilly do a great job of ensuring that um, there isn't bunk in there and that it isn't ad-driven, as you say. Yeah. And so I think a book like yours or books in general are a great place to start when you want to be digging into something um, as opposed to just relying on, say, uh, whatever blog post you come across or YouTube video you come across. Um, So amazing answers to my questions. Thank you so much, Jamak. We also had a huge amount of engagement from the audience. So um, we had great audience questions for you. Uh, I had hundreds of people react to my post that you were gonna be on the show this week on LinkedIn and some amazing questions. Uh, Phil Muro, for example, who is a uh, senior researcher at the AI Institute of New Zealand, He asks, how can a data mesh fit? uh, How can we use a data mesh during the creation and tuning of our machine learning models? Do we need a centralized system to build machine learning models and a decentralized system to run inferences? That's a fantastic question. So I, I would say both. In fact, both training and inference can be done distributedly. You might need to build a few things and bridge some gaps that exist, but that's that's the idea. So the way you would train machine learning model in a perfect, you know, kind of data mesh implementation is that you act as a consumer of the data and data coming from many different places. You directly have contact to those data products. 
So as a, as a data scientist, if you're first, in fact, in the book, I go through the experience of a data scientist as an example, um, as a data persona of a data user, how you can be part of the mesh and interact with the mesh. So while you are hypothesizing about, okay, can I find some patterns here? Can I discover this you know, class of segmentation of my customers based on various attributes? You need to discover on the mesh what the data products are. You need to connect to the data products. And if there is something that's not meeting your requirements, you actually can, there is a data product owner in that domain that you can directly talk to. You don't need to go to a data team middleman. So you go to them and say, oh, it seems like some data is missing. Can we augment your data product? And because they have autonomy, hopefully that process is much faster. So the training can be done um, kind of distributedly by accessing the data from different data products. And if you happen to require yet another data product that is you know, designed for your case and hopefully for others, then make that a data product. So this idea of a feature store that we dump all the features that we've discovered in the feature store uh, is kind of a, a paradox in, in, in contrast with data mesh, right? So as, as the part of the training, whether you're directly consuming from those sources and hopefully those sources are, not hopefully, they must be cleansed you know, data that is suitable with, with some sort of guarantees and, you know, service level agreements that satisfy your use case. Um, and if you need to do some work on it to really make it, I don't know, get some sentiment analysis on or something else, you do that in your new data product. So your computation, training computation happens in that. So training can be done distributedly, ideally will be done. And also inference, if your, if your data, if your model can sit in the flow of the data, as in consume data from the sources that um, you're inferring from, that also became, a, again, a computation of a data product and is generating some data product that other people down, you know, data sets that other people downstream are using. Uh, and that's why I really see, see data mesh as a governing structure, as an operating model in a way, uh, that whether your computation is machine learning model training or inference or, a simple, I don't know, analysis and transformation that we, we have a similar, um, you know, similar structure, similar graph structure at the macro level. Nice. And then the other questions, so there's questions from Andy Billington, Andre Richter, Raju Basumatari, and Juan Pablo. All of them kind of are around the same idea, which is, are there situations where a data mesh is not appropriate or are there situations where you've seen that a data mesh is, that there's a failed implementation of a data mesh and how can we avoid those kinds of uh, issues? Like how can we resolve uh, data mesh failures? Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question. And I might tweak the question slightly and say, are there situations at this point in time where data mm -hmm. mesh is not the right solution, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to kind of get a slice of time where we are Right. And plenty of scenarios at this slice of you know our time uh, that data mesh is not solution you know it's not the right solution because of the level of complexity technical complexity and metal work that you have to do to build the, the, you know the frameworks for this to come to life and unless you your organization has the inherent organizational complexity to justify those efforts and if don't do it if data lakes and data warehouses are not a pain point for you. Don't mm. do it because it's right. there is a lot of footwork that needs to happen. Uh, but maybe fast forward 10 years down the track, if data mesh has become 
business as usual disappeared in the background. It's just how we do things and their tooling is suitable. Then even if you're a small company without the complexity, um, you know, it might be the right thing for you. Awesome. That was a great answer. All right. So Jamak, we've had an amazing conversation. I've learned so much about data meshes from you and you are a foremost expert on it. So I'm not surprised that I did, but I came into the show having this kind of vague understanding and I'm leaving it feeling like I know what's going on and I'm really excited about data meshes. So we are starting to wind down the episode, which means that I just have my two final questions for you that I ask all of our guests. And the first is, do you have a book recommendation for us? Oh, I have multiple, but if I have to give one, I would give the one I'm reading because it's relevant. If you're, if you're building something, if you're building a product like I am, um, I would recommend Build an Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making by Tony Fadell. Um, it's a relatively new book, uh, highly rated already. So I would recommend that. Nice. If you want to break your brain, I can... <laughs> <laughs> recommend something for that or if you want to Please. like enlighten your heart i guess recommend something for that uh, i have one list here for you <laughs> yeah can you do both quickly we can do both quickly if you want to really break your brain uh where mathematics come from mm. uh it's by george lackoff if i say his name correctly i actually refer to his other work in my book uh, and it really breaks your brain how our brain conceptualizes mathematics um, and if you want to enlighten your heart, forgiveness, forgive for good, uh, by um, uh, Frederick Luskin. He's a professor, I think. Uh, he has a program. It's a project of forgiveness at Stanford University. Nice. That sounds great. I would love to read that book, Where Math Comes From. I think about that kind of idea philosophically a lot. And so I'd love to dig into that. And then forgiveness and not, is... Hmm? Sorry, no, you first. Oh, no, yeah. The Breaking Brain, I think it's one of probably polarizing books that you may disagree or agree, but nevertheless, it's a good exercise. Nice. Yeah, and then the forgiveness thing is huge. I mean, I, I many years ago, uh, used to hold, uh, I realized through uh, a daily mindfulness practice, I was like, wow, there's a, like, you know, there's particular things, a particular thing, uh, people in my past that I'm like, you know, I don't, like what they did, that's unforgivable. And I hope that, uh, you know, that they have some kind of karmic event happen. You know, how could somebody like that continue to, uh, you know, feel good about themselves or, but I, uh, yeah, I realized through a daily mindfulness practice that that was being super unhelpful to me that I am then like this person from years ago, like, why is it, why am I letting that experience cloud my day? And then it actually led to some experiences where either I was just able to let it go. And it, it sounds like this book might have lots of guidance for that, which just gives you so much more brightness and capacity in your day and, uh, you know, creative solutioning. Um, and uh, yeah, and even some situations where like, you know, I reached back out to someone and just sent them a message and said, hey, like, let's, uh, you know, how are you doing? Let's have a conversation and just have a half over half hour phone call with somebody that I was holding this grudge with and you're like, you know what? They're not so bad and I hope they're doing well. And um, yeah, so it can make a big difference in your life. I love that. All right. So <laughs> uh, the audience probably doesn't need to hear about my thoughts on forgiveness. You can refer to the experts on that. Uh, and then, so that just leaves us with our final question, Jamak, which is uh, clearly you are a world expert 
on data meshes, this emerging topic, things are only going to get bigger for you now that you set out on your own and launched your own startup. How can people keep up with your thoughts on the one hand, as well as what you're doing as an entrepreneur on the other? Um, I hope I had a better answer. I hope the company will have a website and a way to reach out. But at the <laughs> moment, I'm just fragmented. Uh, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, and platforms like yourself where they host me. But I usually share them on both Twitter and LinkedIn. Awesome. We will be sure to provide both your Twitter and LinkedIn URLs in the show notes. You definitely have a very active LinkedIn profile and people engage a lot with your content. So we're delighted to also be able to provide you with another platform here on the show. Thank you so much, Mac, for taking the time with us. It's been an amazing episode and hopefully we'll catch you again soon. Thank you, John, for hosting me. Thank you for helping me reach a new audience, data scientists, ML engineers. I'm grateful for that. Nice. My pleasure. Jamak radiated presence, warmth, and confidence throughout today's episode. I hope that energy shone through to you too. I personally left our conversation feeling excited about what the future of data and AI holds for us. In the episode, Jamak filled us in on how data meshes solve data silos while supporting greater autonomy and security organization-wide. How both AI model training and inference can be done distributedly with a data mesh how data meshes can provide insights via distributed AI computation, how data meshes enable users to work with data products autonomously while facilitating a shift away from inefficient data pipelines, layers, and centralized data stores. And finally, how decentralization is a common thread running through data meshes, Web3, and the blockchain. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Jamak's LinkedIn and Twitter profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 609. That's superdatascience.com 609. If you'd like to ask questions of future guests of the show, like several audience members did of Jamak during today's episode, then consider following me on LinkedIn or Twitter, as that's where I post who upcoming guests are and ask you to provide your inquiries. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another stellar episode for us today. For details of everyone on the team and their responsibilities on the show, you can visit johncrone.com slash podcast. All right, then. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.